Since what we're talking about is mindfulness of mind, the third foundation of the four foundations of mindfulness, as Steve said, with the mind you're aware of everything, all four foundations. But I thought I'd talk tonight about an aspect of our mental experience that uh, I'm pretty sure you've all been noticing pretty steadily, and that's thinking, thought. Because I think uh, it's a very... uh, it takes up a lot of our airtime sometimes, doesn't it? And it's a, a really interesting phenomenon. It's just, as we've said, just one of the sense experiences, one of the six uh, mental sense experiences, one of the mental sense experiences, thinking, emotions, and other things. And it's so interesting because, uh, well, for many reasons, But I know talking to people here and in all the retreats I've talked to people and in my own experience, it can at times be the case that we can kind of get caught in feeling like our meditation practice is like some kind of struggle with thought. Yes, ever had that feeling? That thought's a problem somehow, you know? So how, why is that so? Some of it is there's some forms of practice where we're really, when we're trying to get really absorbed, where there's a feeling we're supposed to get rid of thoughts. Thoughts shouldn't be there. Now, you're, you, you know we haven't said that this retreat. Is that true? You, you re- no, I'm just checking, really. Because you know? this is where I'll go with our perception. We, but no, we ha- we're not saying that this retreat. But what's really important is when we talk about yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment, the accurate recognition, as Steve was talking about right view, the accurate recognition of experience, moment to moment, the steadiness of it, is what is the condition for wisdom to arise. And the wisdom that recognizes accurately is what liberates our heart and mind from, you know, the confusion, the suffering. Thinking thought and emotions is a natural phenomenon, part of our experience. So what's the big problem with it? And so it comes to this accurate recognition of recognizing the nature of thought, bringing attention, awareness, meeting it with awareness of the nature of thought itself. But often we're really kind of sucked into the story. We're lost in the story of thought. You, you, you know, you get a sense of the difference, right? But the difference is huge in terms of our experience. You know, when we're seeing thought as a thought. So right now, deliberately think a thought. Elephants are gray. Okay, think that thought. Boom. Where is it now? Is that, is that thought gone now? No, I brought it up, so it's back, right? You're hanging on to it. But you see, does that thought have a lot of whoop to it? What is elephants are great. What's, it's nothing, right? It's, it's not even as solid as smoke. A thought is just a little blip of mental energy gone. Thought. Can you get a little sense of that? It just arises from who knows where. It's here, boop, and it dissolves back in, into emptiness, as you say. And if we, the times that the steadiness of mindfulness awareness is just noticing that whole process, how can a thought possibly harm us? 
so we say, well, okay, that thought, that was a stupid thought. But pick an important thought, you know. But the thought energy isn't different. So how do we get so lost in it? I mean, some you know, but I'm going to just describe some ways, some of the process, not to uh, give you information that now you have to go and make a list, but hopefully to pique, to continue to pique our interest so that when thinking or thought is the predominant arising experience, which it often is, instead of making it a problem or wishing something better was coming up or judging the thoughts or whatever, it's like, what's arising? Thinking. It's like this. And then we get interested in exploring why is p- so clear that thought's poof? What's going on with this? That is so. What's the actual process happening? Because thought... If we were trying to get rid of thought, it'd be a little hard to function in the world. Thought's really useful, no? No one here is putting down thought. It's useful when we understand it and we can use it. When we can recognize what's appropriate thought, we can pick it up when it has some, some hopeful bearing on reality, which I hate to say how rare that is, but when it has some bearing on what's really going on, when we want to put something together, incredible, creative, wonderful. But we've got to learn how to tell the difference. And when we're not using thought, when thought's running us, aren't there times, maybe not for you, but you can feel like you're a victim of thought. Some people say, oh no, I don't want that thought to come back again because it's, it's so horrible and all this horrible, you know, and it's just kind of, you know, that obsessive quality of thinking. So here I want to just explore it to see simply another object of nature arising. But because we're so used to getting into the content, um, it can be a, we just need practice. That's all. We just need practice in how to, being mindfulness to thoughts. This is from Utejaniya. Saying, remember that a thought is just another object which helps us to develop awareness, perseverance, and balance of mind. So we've been saying awareness doesn't care. A thought, a sound, a subtle sensation, doesn't matter. But if you don't recognize thought as an object, then you will get carried away by the train of thoughts, by the content, and you lose yourself in the story. Right? That's exactly what happens. So can we even notice that process without any blame or judgment, but see, oh, how does that happen? What's the difference? How do we get lost in the story? What's going on? How does it feel so real? I mean, it's fascinating, really. These little blips of energy, and then, you know, they're making us nuts. It's fascinating to explore. Hopefully, hopefully you will pick up that it can be fascinating to explore. That's my hope. So I want to then um, talk about a few aspects of kind of the, the process of thoughts arising in our mind, the way the Buddha described. It's all happening fast, but all the time. There's some of this stuff we can can see. So back to the fact that there are six sense experiences arising and passing over and over, right? So we've, we've honed in on that the last two nights. So you remember that, right? So, and so the, the way the Buddha talks about our experience, so there's a sense experience arising. Let's take seeing. You know, sight arises, there's eye that works, that consciousness, so those coming together is called contact. That moment of seeing happening. 
then if there's mindfulness awareness, that's kind of the, almost the next moment, you know, knowing that seeing is occurring. But leaving that out, I'm not talking about awareness right now. I'm just talking about the process of, of conscious knowing as we go through our lives. So seeing occurs, or hearing occurs, or it could be a thought, but say seeing. And the way the Buddha describes that, as soon as there's any of the six, so seeing, the mind it, it feels it as pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant, which I mentioned. This is all like this. And then, right then, there's a, a perception, sanya in Pali. And this is very specific, what the Buddha means by perception. A quality in our mind that occurs with, with every, you know, uh, contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, whatever. So the perception is a, like a function of recognition. So if I hold this up and you see it, whether your mind says it or not, you'd probably recognize paper, you know, a piece of paper. You might have more specifics, Carol holding the paper, well, that's the whole thing. But piece of that would be perception, pretty simple. Huh? This is going on all the time. Now, as the Buddha said, what we perceive we think about, we describe. Okay, not we, descriptions happen. And it doesn't have to be. There could just be seeing paper, boom, you know, the mind is kind of quiet. And we like those times. That's part of what it feels like when the mind is quiet, but you're not comatose. There's the perception, you know, deer, and you don't go into the whole story of Bambi, you know. There's just deer and, and there's space around, and you know, to like make up a story. Then there's other times the perception turns into, we use the perceptions as descriptions to describe and define our world, and that is very useful and essential. So when you, most of you, heard the, the kind of gonging sound about 10 minutes ago, if you didn't say it, you recognized bell, and then there would be a further perception and even a description, that's the bell just before the talk that means I come in to go to this talk. And it sets you in your whole world, right? Here I am at Spirit Rock. It's maybe you don't know what day it is, but you know it's nighttime and time to come to the talk. Unless you were taking a nap and you heard that gong and you wake up and you have no clue. Do you know how that is? And the perception, you don't know. You don't know if it's day or night. You don't know what time it is. The sense of perception doesn't quite come in. And sometimes that's fun and sometimes it's disorienting. But anyway, so perception is just another aspect of nature occurring with every sense, every contact with the mind too. And so it's not a problem. It's something we don't often notice, right? Because it goes right into liking, disliking, thinking, whatever, our judgments about it. But the description, that's useful. When we're all on the same page with the perception and the description, then it works, you know? If we just rang the bell at 3 a.m. and didn't give you anything, you go, what the heck? <laughs> you know, your mind would make up some reason that bell was being wrong because you, you wouldn't have that information. So that's very helpful. It helps us describe our world. It's useful in that way, just as thinking is useful in that way. So what we perceive, we think about, we describe, the Buddha says. Now where it starts to get tricky before we even get to the thinking is perception is quite frequently not accurate. 
do and so much we don't even question that and i'll get to where the the inaccuracy comes about often when the the consciousness the mind at that moment is veiled with you know greed or confusion or wanting or aversion but even or ignorance we just don't know but even prior to that isn't there like often a sense of this is just how it is like a funny example i used this last fall I was at a friend's house, someone I know really well, and we're in her living room, and over the couch there was kind of like a throw, you know, a blanket over the back of the couch. And I said something about, well, put it on that blue throw, that blue blanket. She goes, what blue blanket? I said, what do you mean, what blue blanket? It's your house, the blue blanket. She said, that's not blue, that's green. Simple little thing, right? And so we were talking about it, but I could not see green. She could not see blue. You know, even trying. I said, well, isn't that interesting? I would go to my deathbed, that thing was blue. (laughs) And she, that it's green. So right there's a little nugget of the perception isn't absolutely irrevocable, absolute truth. It's all subjective in that way. That simplicity, what we do with the perception, we think about it, we believe our perception, it becomes a view, really. We think about it and then harden it. This is how it is, that's what blue looks like. How could she think green? What's the matter with her? You know? And, she, and you see how quick we go there, how quick. So that's a simple thing and we had fun with it because then it takes us into really where our practice is the most flourishing, the, the quality of open awareness is just the moment experience arises into the mind of not knowing. You know, mindfulness awareness isn't about, I know what this is. That comes, even if you're using labeling, that comes after. The perception comes, oh, that's a bell hearing. But first, it's just that open presence of awareness, the not knowing. But with the perception and the thinking hardening into views, there's this sense, often unconscious, this is how it is. And something upsets it or someone else has a different, this is how it is. It can be big trouble, huh? But first we'll just stay with ourselves. So, perception, we often don't recognize it, we implicitly believe it. Steve's example of the, what we perceive is the sun going around the earth right? That's what we perceive. We can't perceive other. And we read all this. I was thinking as he was talking and now he said, now we all know it doesn't. I thought, well, I've read that. I believe that, but I don't actually know that, you know, that, that I just know that everybody says it and they know more than me, so I'll believe it. But I don't actually know that um, in terms of what our actual perception is. So what this is what the Buddha described. What we, what we perceive, what we feel we perceive, what we perceive we think about. What we think about we complicate with associations, interpretations, memories, comparisons. And then, okay, I won't make it up, I'll quote it. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. And as Joseph Goldstein, a good friend of ours, he's a you know, 
long-term Vipassana teacher, has a lot of very pithy sayings. And one of them is, we're making it all up. <laughs> so a lot of the time we are. So I'll give you an example of how this works in a, in a kind of funny way. When, the, when sometimes perception we just don't know accurately, like blue-green, who knows this, what's the ultimate truth? Or you hear a sound and you don't know what it is. But that leads to the thoughts and the emotions and the views and the whole story. And we totally implicitly believe that. So a friend of mine, good friend, was telling me about her first 10-day uh, meditation retreat many years ago in Switzerland with Ajahn Sumedho, who is a really wonderful, I mentioned him the other night, teacher. And so it, at that time, there was no meditation centers. So the group rented an old house. They have these old houses in, in Switzerland that they use for summer camps for kids. So they're really big with a lot of rooms, built really, you know, not with a lot of insulation. They only use them in the summer. Wood. So they're really noisy. The kind of thing that anytime you're walking on the floor, it creaks, it bangs. You can hear the person breathing in the next room, but there's six people in a room anyway. Um, so that kind of place. So she, and, and in this place, the big meditation room was, on the, was upstairs, and the room that was used for walking, the same size, was immediately below it on the ground floor. And it was a schedule. You sit, you walk, you know, according to schedule. And so and she would acknowledge herself being very Swiss, you follow the schedule. And so it was a sitting time. So she was sitting. Her first retreat, so those of you first retreat, you know it's tough. I mean, the third or fourth day, have you noticed your mind's getting a little cranky? Starting a little, this isn't what I signed up for. Third or fourth day, it's time for that. Don't take it personally. And it'll change because everything does. Anyway, so she's sitting and she said, finally, just following the breath and the mind got a little peaceful. And she's like, basically, thank God, you know, finally for two minutes or three minutes, it's peaceful. And then she could hear this creak, creak, creak of somebody walking downstairs. It's like, creak, creak. She's oh my, they're completely ruining my meditation and it's the sitting time. How can they be walking downstairs? And she just got in a, you know, sitting look, looking like an angel, but in an incredible rage, you know, how can this person creak, creak, creak? And each time she'd hear the creak, you know, anger would come shooting up. And another thought, how can they do it? Should I get up and go, no, they're wrecking my meditation. You can relate, right? So the stories are getting stronger. The emotion is coming with the stories. The negativity is getting stronger. And finally, she realized, what can I do? Because I'm not allowed to leave the sitting anyway. You know, she wasn't the manager. So out of desperation, which is what we usually do, she decided to go back and see if she could feel her breath. You know, finally, it's like, what else is there to do? <laughs> Try and be with what's actually happening. And she didn't know how to watch her mind. So she went back and just felt the breath. Took another breath, took another breath, and then with the next breath, because she was just present, noticing, she recognized she was leaning against the wall. First retreat, can't sit up straight. She was leaning against the wall, and every time she took a breath, her back went into the wall, and it made this creak. And that's what she was hearing. (laughs) There was nobody walking downstairs. So that's an example of when the perception, when the accurate perception comes in, that whole story vanished. 
vanish, right? The whole story of someone walking, you really can't sustain it when the, when the accurate, you really can't, you know? And the anger is, well, there's nothing to get angry at. It's all gone. It just vanishes. It's gone. That's an example of the difference between misperception, inaccurate perception leading to thinking and emotion and self-story. It's a huge amount of suffering and lost in it. And then the accurate perception, the whole thing vanishes. You get a sense of how, how fast that goes, how quickly, and the power of correct perception to free your mind from all that suffering. Now, she went back to feel the breath, but it doesn't have to be the breath. One, and that's what we're going to practice here, one could also notice, say, wow, look at this aversion in the mind and bring awareness to that as it is in the moment. Look at these thoughts, but different from jumping in and believing the thoughts. That's what the Buddha called papancha proliferation. Just you jump in and this one, and how are they walking? How can we get really caught? Sony Rinpoche describes that very well. He says, we get into so much pain and confusion by letting ourselves get lost in whatever happens. You project a thought, then the second thought believes the first one. Then a third, fourth, fifth thoughts are projected. The first thought is by this time already an absolute reality. By the time the tenth one comes, it believes that the fifth one has always been an actuality. Can you relate to that at all? We totally believe. And we, until we practice stepping back, oh wow, thinking is like this. This is a thought. We miss the, the moment of just the, the, the sense of the nature of thought, which is just this poof, and we're totally in the content and the associated moods and emotions and reactions and self-story, let's face it, that comes along with it. And if, you know, I came and tapped you on the shoulder and said, it's just a thought, you probably want to punch me. What do you mean it's just a thought? Don't you know what's going on? You know, <laughs> yeah, I sound a little bit upset's going on. Upset feels like this. The, the thought is so solid. Okay, so... It's interesting to see how when the perception is inaccurate, when it's accurate too, we can have an accurate perception and also get wigged out about it. But when it's inaccurate and it really feeds into that, we get completely gone, out of touch with reality. And in fact, one of the um, definitions, one of my definitions of insight is actually shift of perception, accurate perception. This is from the, the Dalai Lama says, all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. I'm going to read that again. Understanding Dhamma wisdom, he means, does not arise as the result of thinking. It is a result of the long process of conscious awareness. And it's the steadiness, the, the process of conscious awareness that allows us to see, like that whole process of the noise in the Swiss house. 
It was the steadiness of awareness that let that be revealed. She couldn't think her way into that. She didn't have that information. Thich Nhat Hanh. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts. That's how thoughts are useful. But often thoughts are too limited to really carry all the understanding, to encompass all the understanding. That's one of the reasons we get into confusion when we're trying really to talk about stuff and no matter what we say, it has a limitation. That's just the nature of things. So I want to talk just uh, for a moment again about what it is that distorts perception, the qualities that can arise in our mind. We've talked about them, but I just want to give little examples of them. Because then, with steady awareness, we can start to notice. You can start to kind of tune in. Sometimes the thoughts can be a clue that you're coming off of a distorted perception. You can go, wait, maybe I don't really know what's going on here. You know? And that can be quite interesting. So, Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who is really uh, a wonderful teacher. He's, he's dead now. Oh, here he goes. I really like how he describes this. He says, when our sense organs meet an object, the only part the object itself plays, say this this sight, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness, right? So the seeing bell. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, because that's what influences perception. If you never saw a bell like this, you might not know what it was, right? Influenced by all of that, the whole process is entirely subjective. Blue-green, who knows? When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure or lovely. You get a sense of that sometimes? And I want to just give simple examples here because this is what goes on. And we can, the awareness, our, our just natural being with experience, it can kind of notice at any point of it. But the steadiness sometimes lets us see the whole process. And once we start to see it's a natural process and don't take it so personally, it's kind of fun to watch. So, of course, what gets in the way, what distorts, what are the veils, are our old friends, desire, greed, aversion, ill will, fear, and delusion, which is sometimes also ju- just not knowing. Delusion can make it like make something up completely, but sometimes it's just not knowing. We don't have all the information. So how does it distort? Another example, the little story, Zen story. So uh, in a samurai in ancient times, you know, samurai warrior went to a Zen master. And so he was, very, he was a very aggressive, wild kind of warrior, not really a practitioner. And he runs into the Zen master with his sword and he just roughly starts yelling, you're a pig, you're a pig. <laughs> and the Zen master, of course, as they do, just bowed and said, and you, sir, are a Buddha. So that, that stopped the guy for a minute. He goes, a Buddha? How can you... He even knew better, right? How can you say I'm a Buddha? And the Zen master said, well, a pig sees a pig. A Buddha sees a Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) 
a little bit like that. A little bit like that. We take it all so personally, you know. So, you can start to explore in your own experience. And Steve will talk more about these these qualities, these so-called kalatia, so-called defilement tomorrow, I'm just introducing just to see. So one thing, when there's wanting in the mind, when there's greed, just in the moment of the mind's arising, and we notice it, then it's just the next object. We've talked about that. But when we don't notice it, and it's often we don't. Later we could say, yes, there's wanting. But when it's kind of, you know, distorting perception, we don't quite see it. And the Tibetans have a phrase I love that, that desire puts feathers on the object. Like it pretties it up. And have you noticed when you really want something, whatever, a piece of chocolate cake, or going for a walk, or, you know, in your mind you're planning your next vacation. Isn't it all look or seem so wonderful? You know, just amazing. And then check at the end of the retreat when it's over and you go home. Think back to all the amazing fantasies you had of what's going to happen. And you just tell me if any one of them comes anywhere close to how amazingly wonderful and beautiful it seems to the mind filled with wanting. That's just what wanting does. When we recognize it, you know, have you ever, like, if you go to the supermarket when you're hungry, you know, we all know not to do that, right? Don't go to the supermarket when you're hungry. You end up buying all this junk and you get home. What am I doing with this? Or, no, this is just happening. This is a little thing. I'm trying to give little examples so you can get interested and not take it personal. So, um, in the apartment I'm staying in, I, I, I had to buy some rugs because it's all tile floor. So I have this one rug that I bought on eBay and I really liked it. I really like it. You know, it kind of was it's cheerful, it cheers me up, I really like it. And I can feel, it's not a huge desire, but it's a little bit, you know, wanting, liking, you know, look at it, I like it. So Franz came up just to check things out the other day, and he had a different perception. <laughs> no, 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 not like bad, but just different. He didn't have like, like one of my friends she was talking about when, she, when you first get in relationship with someone, she called it the love eyes, you know, and she said, now they'd been married for 15 years or something and they were working through something, not bad. She said, but you know the love eyes aren't on anymore. <laughs> you see, and the hate eyes weren't on either. You just see more accurately. So he's going, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's like this, but you know, he just saw other things about it or in a different way that I hadn't seen. It wasn't critical, but just a different perception without that, oh, isn't it so lovely? So after he left, I was just kind of looking at it. <laughs> I didn't like it all upset, but I kind of, at first, we like wanting. So when the wanting is gone, we go, well, it's all flat. I don't want to live like that. That's aversion. But when it's gone and it's not one, you just see like it is. Like, oh, yeah, I can see what he means. But, the, but no, I still like it. I still think it's kind of cheerful. But that kind of wanting it so wonderful wasn't there, you know? Just little things like that. But wanting also gives us tunnel vision. Like, you know, we see the thing we want and everything else is in the way, you know, where we just don't notice. Pay attention to that. And see, my brother used to have a, a hound dog. You know, they're bred for hunting. Well, I mean, my brother didn't hunt. And very, a lovely dog, very sweet, but the nose sense is so highly developed that that poor dog, he'd come into the house and whatever new smell was in the house, he couldn't not go there. I mean, nose on the ground, go to the smell. If there was like any kind of dirty tin can, I mean, they had to hide everything. 
I would have to always have my suitcase zipped because any smell of like dirty clothes or anything, he's in the suitcase pulling it out. Or, and he just, if you let him out in the backyard, he's just got his nose on the ground running around the perimeter of the fence. He just can't not do it. No way. That's how wanting drives the bus when it's taken over our mind, you know? And we don't see it. We think, yeah, this smell on the ground is so great. This smell is so fantastic. Let me smell this new one. This one's okay, but this new one over here, you know, that will be even better. And then we think about it and we get into a whole story and we believe it, right? The wanting goes, what am I doing here? Andrea Levine, I just want to laugh, that was so funny about how we can't rely on, now this is me, not Andrea Levine, when we recognize that the perception, the mind in the moment is affected, the perception may be distorted, you don't know, but maybe by wanting or ill will or delusion. No, and really know this, you cannot rely on the thoughts that are being generated. You can't assess if they're accurate. You really can't trust them. You can't believe them. Like Andrew, simple one with wanting. Andrew was giving the example of you're sitting there, you have this big piece of chocolate cake, and, you, and then you think, oh, have another. Your mind goes, have another. You'll like it. It's good for you. So you eat that other one. Then as soon as you're done, your mind goes, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. <laughs> oh, which one is me? And then we get a whole thing. It's just different mental factors, coloring thoughts. So starting to see that. And even more, maybe not even more, but more immediately obvious suffering. And a lot of people on retreat see it. The wanting, we kind of delude ourselves. We think it's good because we think we're going to get something nice. We skip over the fact that we're really miserable right now in this wanting because I'm going to get something nice. With this next one, with ill will, aversion, fear, you can't really skip over it because it's telling you not only is it bad now, it's only going to get worse, right? But so when ill will, aversion, dislike is affecting the mind. It really leads to so much thought, right? So much assessment. Self-judging is a form of this. I know this one very well. And it's been so freeing that when I recognize self-judging is, you know, it has a feeling, a tone. It's an emotion by this. By the time it's self-judging, it's really like stronger than just a thought. It kind of has a whole feeling for me, like a cloud coming over my mind and tightness in the body and a heavy mood. You can recognize it. It arises due to natural causes and conditions. I could, you know, therapeutically trace back all the conditions in my life. Let me tell you, you only need to do that once. (laughs) Then you know. The next time it comes up, you can just meet it as it is. You know there's causes and conditions. You have to go, but that's right. My mother did do that. My father did it. Yeah, you know that. Good. Now it's arising now and you can really be, knowing it helps because it makes it not so personal. Yeah, there's cause and condition. And in certain situations, I know, not only the past, but if, for example, I'm really tired and my mind is really fatigued, or if I had a series of difficult and unpleasant um, interactions, and I'm balanced, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, you really blew that one, kiddo. You know, and boom, you can feel it coming in. So what's been so helpful is once I recognize, oh, self-judging is up, ill will is up, aversion's up, The mind is throwing out, projecting all these thoughts, and I really know I cannot rely. Those thoughts are unreliable. They're based on inaccurate perception. 
I can't try and tease out with, which is right, that you're really a worm on the earth because of what you said to that person or because of what your mother did. Or it's not, you're not really a worm. You're just, you know, kind of so-so. No, no, you're really great. You're really incredible. You know, every, you know it's like, forget it. Just forget it. The mind can keep on spewing that stuff, just, but you, you just see, oh, thought is just thought. It's just thought coming. You feel the mood, the feeling of the self. That's what's arising now. Causes and conditions. But you just know, uh, perception's off. The thoughts are based on inaccurate. They're not to be relied on. Do you get a sense of how when we start to tune into this in our life, it can be so helpful in making decisions, even split-second ones? When we start to notice, and this has been so helpful to me the last few years, and I'm in my daily life, I'm doing something or saying, and I think, oh, I really want to go do this X, Y, Z. It doesn't matter what. It doesn't have to be a big deal. And then I just notice, because I'm used to just noticing my mind, what's going on in the mind, and I notice just filled with wanting. It doesn't mean the thing I want is bad or good. It means I can't tell. It means I have no clear way, clear perception to assess. So if I can wait, I do. Same with ill will. You know, if I'm really negative, let me go tell that person how this last interaction affected me with all the love in my heart, because they really need to know. And then I can feel, oh, yeah, there's a lot of ill. I don't have to judge it. It's not about judging. It's, oh, this is what's up now. And with the practice of watching our mind, you can see how when there's ill will or aversion, it leads to these thoughts. And if I believe it and feed it, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Then I'll act from it. Seeing that, not, not as it should, but just watching it, this is what Steve said, the wisdom comes by itself. Then the wisdom comes, oh, yeah. Uh, I don't want to do that. It's not like I have to go back and study the Vasudhi Maga to see that I don't want to go and yell at that person out of anger, you know? And so when I'm just paying attention, but if you start judging the anger, that's just more ill will reverberating on itself. It's from the Buddha. Again, when one is dwelling with a mind oppressed by ill will, and does not understand as it really is the escape from a risen ill will. On that occasion, one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. He's not saying that's a criticism, just says, oh, that's how it is. And he goes, you know, if your mind's obsessed and oppressed by wanting, and you see in that moment, you see that, but you... You know, the, sometimes just noticing wanting it fades. Sometimes you can see there's enough awareness. You know it's here. You know ill will's here, but we still can tell we're identified. You can tell that. That's awareness. So then you know, okay, I can't see my own good or the good of another or the good of both. So don't trust it, don't trust it right now. With wanting, with ill will, and with delusion. So delusion is sometimes just not having all the information, you know, and we don't, often don't know we don't have all the information. So then we have to act. But just, this is just in the kind of mundane way I'm talking now. But when we get from this quality of these, of delusion, of, which is both not having enough information, just plain ignorance in that way, or the delusion of misperceiving and then building a whole life story on it, and there's a kind of delusion which is um, making assumptions. 
which is often I've noticed in my mind in terms of on the level of perception, I don't have enough really the information, that quality of just, you know, beginner's mind, just, oh, I don't know what this is. But notice how the memory banks, the perception will fill in something that's kind of close. And then we're sure that's what it is. Like, again, one time I was teaching a retreat in Switzerland, a different place years ago, and walking in the woods in Reckingen. Remember Reckingen? And walking in the forest with a friend without my glasses, which is a really great way to play with that kind of delusion and misperception in the mind, because I really can't see very well. I see enough that I can get around, and so then I think I know what's going on. I don't have a clue. And so I don't know I don't have a clue, because I'm used to it. That's delusion. (laughs) So I was walking in in the forest, it's kind of a nice, tidy forest, with a friend, and I looked over and I saw this big, big, like, um, kind of gray and yellow and white striped thing. And I said, I said to her, I was like, wow, what's a circus tent doing here? That's what I saw, a circus tent. And I went home, a circus tent in the woods and wrecking and making, you know, the whole, like that. And she just looked at me. <laughs> Carol, go over there and look. So I go over, it's like, it was a big rock covered with yellow lichen, you know, and kind of, but I literally saw a circus tent, right? <laughs> That's delusion. And there's a lot of time we just don't know that uh, and we can actually build a lot more than that was quick. So in terms of right view, as Steve was talking about in, in, in even in more uh, profound ways, the, the liberating, the accurate recognition, the yata bhuta that really frees the mind and heart, the accurate perception is on a level of... Um, the Buddha talks about four particular uh, hallucinations of perception or inverted perception, where we perceive something opposite from how it actually is. And then we believe and we build our thoughts and our views and our world on that. And seeing through those over and over and over is really the source of liberating insight. How do we see through steady, steady, steady awareness of just what's occurring, not looking for it. You look for something that's wanting. So in particular, and and any of you who've read any Buddhism, you're very familiar with these. One is that, is seeing permanence in where there is not permanence. Anicca, you know, the word for, for impermanence, for constant change. But the perception we often have is of permanence, where there's not permanence. And this, just put in, don't try to think about it, because we can't think our way out. Um, seeing the first noble truth, dukkha, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness of experience. doesn't mean every experience is unpleasant but the, unsatisf- the unreliability to make us truly happy. We don't see that. We see a potential for happiness. We see this is going to make me happy. We see a sense of happiness where that isn't there, where it's dukkha, where it's unreliable, where it's intrinsically... Mm, I don't like to use suffering because we tend to go into aversion with that word, and it's not about aversion. It's about looking for, looking for reliability and stability where there is none. And the, the third one is seeing a, set, a discrete, separate, permanent self in any moment of experience where that is not the case. 
like taking something personal where it's just conditions of nature coming together, coming together, as we've been talking about. But talking about it doesn't shift our perception. That's why when Steve was saying with right view, we need to hear it or read it or get some sense. So I think, okay, let's pick impermanence. You think, well, I know things change. You know, we go up and ask somebody, I know things change on a big level. But if you just start dropping in from time to time, don't go crazy looking for it, but how often is the perception that things aren't changing? You know, we know I change. Do I look the same as I looked when I was three? No. But that's all on an intellectual level. We kind of get up and think, how come I'm sick today? Uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be different. You know, we think we're just kind of the same me, whatever it is. We think we're all sitting here kind of the same. But when we're really, when the mind is quiet and moment-to-moment awareness, no two moments are the same. They're not. When you're lost, like we were talking in, in some group where some strong, difficult emotion was there, really strong, the person was really with it, and then noticing is gone. And there was just a moment of happiness and noticing it's really gone. But the tendency of the mind is to think, well, I'm not noticing it now, but it's really here lurking around because this is who I really am. It's permanent. So this, these misperceptions, and don't believe me because it doesn't help, but that there's so many moments because perceptions occurring every conscious moment. There's so many moments in our life that the perception unrecognized is of permanence, is of sense of self, is of reliability. And then all our thoughts and views of ourself and views of the world are built on that perception. And then when, you know, things don't quite mesh, like a, a, like a, a round peg in a square hole, do you know what I mean? That little sense of the ox, the... One of the definitions of dukkha, or, or the actual etymological thing of dukkha, which means unreliability, not quite working, is from the old days, uh, that, that axle, the wooden, the wooden rod that goes through the hole in the big wooden wheel of an ox cart. Like they still have those in Burma. Very rough. So just this round thing and this a hole and this one solid wooden wheel, it goes through. It doesn't fit that well. It's rough. It, it's just kind of, and if you've ever ridden in an ox cart, believe me, it really is. <laughs> kind of like that. It just doesn't quite go. So he calls these inverted perceptions. And he talks about what we perceive, sanya, perception. We think about chitta. So there comes to be the hallucination of perception or the inverted perception. And then without realizing it, we're thinking about, you know, how many people have your date books filled up for next month? I'm having to plan for 2015. I'm having to answer questions about 2016. And if I'm not quite aware there's this underlying assumption I'll still be alive in 2016, you know? Or we make a plan. I remember once Franz and I made a plan. I was flying in from the States. He was God knows where. One never knows where he is. And we were meeting in the Bangkok airport at midnight. And it really happened. That's, to me, more amazing. But there's all these assumptions that all this stuff is going to be steady. And so we think from the point of view of this misperception, and that's, that's uh, hallucination of thinking of chitta. And then what we think about, as I was saying with my friend in the Swiss house, those thoughts kind of solidify 
kind of coagulate into a view. A view meaning like a, really a description of ourselves or the situation or the world. We may not enunciate it clearly. This is what I believe. It helps because then we at least know what the view is. But it's more in the back. But it's like this is what's true. This is how the Buddha described view. This is what's true and everything else is false. But we don't recognize that's a view. If we don't recognize and we hold to it, and then from those thoughts, just like when I'm in, in self-judgment and I believe the thoughts, and then I start making assessments and actions from that, I just get more and more confused. It's more and more not working. Well, that's kind of what can go on for us until we start to understand how this is happening. And so with views in particular, you know, this is how it is. Sometimes people talk about in meditation, they have some experience where it's just so some experience where everything's different from how it usually was. It's, it's unfamiliar. Maybe a sense that the body falls away. Maybe suddenly everything's happening, but it doesn't feel like me. And it, nothing threatening, but it's just different. And often fear comes up because our solidity, our view, is like the, the mind, the habit of mind seems to like to be able to describe and know things. This is how it is. Have you noticed that? We like to have it all. Okay, I know how it is. Clue, you know, and when when we get locked in a view without realizing, often then we don't even let in consciously perceptions that challenge that view. I call it selective perception. Think of politics. Don't think of politics, but I'm (laughs) not going to mention anything. But many years ago, another president, many presidents of the United States back, one I was not fond of, and. I just remember this one time, you know, so of course that's all views and you see what goes on. But I just noticed in my own mind how this selective perception worked. So someone that, you know, I could hardly stand to look at the person or I'd hear, hear the voice on television, oh, you know, like that right away. They never did anything good in their life. So someone was telling me something about this president that was kind of sweet and loving and very kind, you know. And my mind's going, don't tell me that. I don't want to know. There's nothing good about that person. Don't tell me, that can't be true. It's like, whoa, <laughs> that's really interesting, you know. I don't want my view upset. It's, it feels easy, this is good and this is bad. This is right and this is wrong, right? We've been talking about in one of the groups today, different styles of practice and think, well, I'm doing this style of practice, does that mean this other style is wrong or good or bad? And that's what our mind likes to do and it's not like that. It's not like that. So when we get in a, in a view, we sometimes literally don't perceive what's actually in front of our face. Okay, this is another story Franz told me. I'm assuming it's true. The ghost driver? Is that true? <laughs> anyway, yes, it's a funny story. So they, in Germany, they, they call it if, you know, if somebody uh, enters in on a divided freeway driving and you enter in driving on the wrong side, uh, that can happen once in a while. You, you know what I mean? So you're, say all the traffic's going north and somehow you went in the wrong exit and you're driving south on a divided freeway, you can't get off. So they call that a ghost driver. Don't ask me why, because they're going to be a ghost pretty soon, I suppose. And so they call that a ghost driver. So this is the story. It doesn't matter, but it illustrates. So the person's driving... Wrong way. And sometimes they'll say on the radio, you know, they'll come in and say there's a traffic jam in this area or whatever. And so it came on in the radio and the 
woman was listening to it, Ghost Driver on the Autobahn between, you know, München and, and Augsburg. And the woman's going, it was, who was the ghost driver? Singing, one ghost driver, but there are many. <laughs> we just don't, you know, like, let in the perception because we're so fixed in our views. I know, I'm telling funny stories on purpose, but you get a drift how it goes. So, to sense of me, noticing how, and I'm, I'm touching on a lot of things that we could go into a lot of depth, but you notice how one of the misperceptions that I mentioned, the Buddha, is this sense of me, how we take things so personally, you know, a mood comes up, it's my fault, it's me, it's like this. A sound comes, it's bothering me, it's got to be fixed. You come feeling lonely, what's the matter with me? This, you know, all of that. So this sense of me, have you noticed that it gives rise to a lot of thoughts? A lot of the thoughts are describing me and how I feel and what's going on. I'm not saying good or bad, but again, if the perception's inaccurate, the thoughts are not trustworthy. So here, what we want to do is not get rid of them, not even argue with them, not try to change them, not try to fix them, but get interested in watching the whole process. Perception, what arises, the thoughts, the sensations, just keep on watching. So two little examples for me on retreat. I was on a long retreat. I was doing that, we just watching, 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 watching. And I had watched a movie just before the retreat. Did any of you make that mistake? <laughs> so this is a three-month retreat. And so it was this movie, The Fugitive, from years, a long time ago. Right? So I'm sitting and sitting, and thoughts are, you know, images are coming, Harrison Ford and this and that. And so when I, when I stopped, you know, resisting it, and I would just be noticing, thinking, liking, excitement, you know, happening, happening, happening. And then that would go away. And then the Carol story would start coming on. Carol's this and she's doing that. And, she, and then after a while, it was, it was just thinking and seeing and feeling. And the Carol story and the fugitive story, it was no, substan- no different. In the moment, it was thoughts and emotions and internal images. That's all it was occurring. The fugitive was more interesting. The Carol, <laughs> I took more personal. But all that was happening was emotions and perceptions and thoughts and feelings and moods. It was really kind of funny to see. And then to see how we, you know, we kind of land in some story, some thought, some mood during the day. Like the example I, I gave the woman in the group where it really is a difficult thing. And then suddenly you notice it's completely gone. But with selective perception, we just kind of ignore that it's completely gone. And then we're back, I was so miserable all day. Sometimes people say, oh, so, oh really? Well, how, well, then, in that first sitting, the whole sitting, well, no, but there was about five minutes in the middle. That was really, and then the whole day, well, no, then I had this nice walk. I went up to the top of the hill, and lunch was really good enough. But then in the afternoon, I had this, you know, 10 minutes, and it was so. And we don't realize we're doing that. And this is me, and all of that other stuff isn't me. But watch how it's just all cause and effect. So another story, when I was on retreat, I was um, sitting in my room, I think it was, must have been just end of summer, early fall, very present. And there's the sound of crickets, you know, crickets, crickets. So I was aware crickets, the perception was crickets, that, and that was accurate. And then with that perception came a, like a, a feeling, I get this feeling of nostalgia, kind of that sadness of summer ending and fall beginning and a loneliness came. And I 
I, that is a habit that my mind goes to when I hear crickets. So that was happening. Oh, and sadness, and oh, it's ending, and I'm so lonely here, all alone in this room, and three-month retreat. I could die here. No one would know for three days, you know, until my next interview. No one would know. And, you know, so that's all going, and I was really mindfully watching, just watching the whole thing. You know, okay. So then I thought, well, let's, let's just see. Let's just see. I'll do an experiment. So I sat down and said, okay, bring the attention deliberately to hearing sound of crickets. And then I deliberately thought a different thought. So the perception was the same crickets. I deliberately thought, oh, isn't that lovely here in the nature? It's so silent. It's this lovely end of summer. That's all I did. But just deliberately thought that. And the whole story followed from that. I started feeling really happy. That, oh, oh, this peace is beautiful. How fortunate to be on this retreat. The exquisite stillness, hearing the crickets. And that was just as real as the one before. Or not. <laughs> Thinking, emotions, perception, it all comes. Watch it come, watch it go. Birth and death of a particular sense of me. It's really fun to play with that through the days. So... I will just end with a short thing from Ajahn Sumedho. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or emotions or actions or speech. Awareness is about knowing these things fully just as they are, that they are what they are in this moment. That is all. That is all. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. May our sincere intentions here, our efforts, the wholesome energy be shared with all beings everywhere as one of the causes for their awakening from suffering and confusion. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience. So as you get up, if you get up and you go to walk, just notice what you're doing and notice the mind, why it's doing it, without a judgment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.